the perfect combination of versatile athleisure and training apparel has arrived. Thanks to the visionary minds of New Balance, Clutch Athletics, and Rich Paul, the designs reflect the heart of the athlete and the spirit of the community. With rising defensive football stars Will Anderson and Chase Young on the roster, Clutch Athletics brings the best innovative gear to all athletes, giving them style and performance on and off the field. Learn more and purchase Clutch Athletics at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson and Barton Simmons. It's your call for the best college football coverage. From National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between, CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Tom Fernelli. I'm Chip Patterson. Barton Simmons, not able to be with us, but he sends his best on this Mailbag Monday. Uh, Tom, as we sit here in the midst of our, whether you are, as a listener, uh, actually engaging in some quarantine, or uh, hopefully you are engaging in social distancing, maybe you're listening to this on headphones, maybe you're listening to it through your whole house, Put the Cover 3 podcast on your home speakers. That's a challenge for the next month. Uh, how are you doing here on this Monday afternoon? First of all, if, you're list- if you've got like the setup in your house where you can play it throughout the whole house, I hope you're doing that right now. Right. And that my voice is filling the hallways. Filling. Make, make me a sandwich right now. <laughs> but wa- wash your hands before you do it. Yeah, please. Thank you. I'm, uh, I'm all right. I mean... I don't know. I, I I feel like last we talked, like Thursday and Friday after, you know, the sports was canceled. I, I, I feel like that was somewhat easier to deal with simply because, you know, those are typical weekdays. And even though we were missing out on like championship week games, you were still able to be in that normal mindset. It was I think it wasn't until the weekend came when it was like a Saturday and a Sunday and there were no sports to watch where it just kind of really started hitting me. And then I think the one main thing was I had to delay or postpone my fantasy baseball league draft by two weeks. And I think that's when it really hit me. The fantasy baseball league? Well, I was yeah. I had started doing some scouting into the uh, Mexican Premier League because I figured we might be able to do locks <laughs> for that football league here on the league Cover 3 podcast. Because uh, they had game, they had matches on Saturday and Sunday, right? Or at least they got through uh, yeah. one match, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I was, know. They, I know they had at least one that we were showing on CBS. We were streaming. I was, I was really starting to put together the principles for uh, our adolescent unders or something like that. A good person to go to on that would be Bill Connolly at ESPN, who also cover he covers college football, but he's also covering soccer for them, and he's got the advanced stats for soccer. And I know, I know, he pays attention to the Liga MX. So, if we are going to start gambling on Mexican league soccer, he's the where we want to start. But then they even suspended the Mexican league soccer. Is, is nothing sacred? Is nothing sacred? Um, yeah. The, well, the... at least UFC. <laughs> Because, you know, that's that's a great sport to be partaking in right now during social distancing. Just sweaty people hugging each other aggressively for 20 minutes at a time. Because it was some of the only live sports on television, it was sort of popping up as we were flipping channels. And uh, and Parker saw a clip of it sort of in passing. And she goes, that's sensual. 
I mean, it, it needs to be a, a UFC promo. UFC Fight Night 249. It's sensual. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So it's a, it's a mailbag Monday. The mailbag has been uh, full. It's been over. It's been overstuffed. And one of the great opportunities about the off season, as we promised during the year, is we're going to come back and revisit these. So uh, any questions that... W- we're going to pull some questions from October. We're going to pull some questions from November. Uh, we've, we're going to continue to take your new questions at uh, the Cover 3 College Football Podcast page. You go, you leave a five-star review, you leave your question in there. It gets added to the mailbag. Uh, I think that we've got some fun discussions that as we're going to sort of uh, bounce around the country. Uh, we will, in the coming weeks, also start reaching out to some of our sources from around college football, some of the interesting voices that might be able to contribute uh, to talking about the the world the the college football world at large you know the moving pieces what we expect after a season where we saw sort of a new uh king of the mountain you know lsu rises up and displaces clemson so we've got an lsu we got a clemson we got an alabama ryan day's ohio state which was you know one score away from being there against lsu Uh, a lot of those sort of big storylines we'll be digging into as well as more team specific stuff basically what would serve as your spring practice primer. We are going to be uh, your spring practice breakdown. So make sure that if you are listening to this for the first time and you're not subscribed, do subscribe to the Cover 3 podcast. Uh, Leave us a rating and a review for the mailbag, and we are going to keep bringing this college football heat and actually, you know what, some other heat too. We've got a surprise for you uh, coming up a little bit later on uh, that branches outside the college football world. But... Social distancing is when you need podcasts and we can record them (laughs) while practicing social distancing. So uh, we're going to get into it. Uh, All right. We will begin with a question from Dave G. Dave G asked, can we imagine an offense besides the triple option working at Navy given the challenges of recruiting? Do we get to use like aircraft carriers and jets? (laughs) no ah damn well there goes there goes that whole new offense i designed this morning uh i don't know i mean i I was thinking about this and i don't want to say that it would be impossible but i really have a hard time imagining what the offense would look like if it wasn't a variety of the option whether it's the flex bone the wish bone whatever bone you want to use for your option offense just because it's Navy, Army, Air Force, like the service academies, they can't recruit the level of athlete that the other schools can simply because, well, they could. It's just there aren't a lot of those five-star, four-star, high three-star players who are going to want to go to a service academy because of the other you know, responsibilities with being there and, you know, like the military service. Not everybody wants to join the military. So... There's a very limited pool of applicants they get to choose from. And the reason that the option works for them is that it's a neutralizer in that, you know, it's like we, we've talked plenty of times about how power five schools should do it, you know, that are not really traditional powers because it's that contrarian play where you are that thing that the other your opponents aren't used to seeing and they have to prepare specially for you. They aren't used to facing you. So it gives you the advantage. I mean, that's that kind of thinking is what led to spread offenses becoming so prevalent in the country where smaller schools were like, OK, well, we're getting smaller guys. 
We can't get the big guys, so we'll focus on the smaller, fast guys. We'll spread them out, and we'll try to run past all these big, strong dudes who can't keep up, and that'll help equalize things for us. And it worked. So I feel like if we're ever going to see a situation in which the service academies aren't running an option offense, it's going to be because the option offense has become prevalent again elsewhere. And then they're going to have to trade change up and go to like a spread. They're going to, I mean, they're always going to have to be on that contrarian side to where they can make up for their inadequacies as far as the athletes that they have on their roster compared to what everybody else has. Okay. So I, I agree on the contrarian point and I was thinking about adding on, but I'm afraid that it might be taking a step too far in, in trying to make it fit in terms of uh, the so, sort of the way the option works and the reason uh, why you use it against the defense in terms of that it puts defenders in a buy in a decision making bind correct yes and uh, you've got all of the flexibility uh, in terms of when you're under center like you could run it to the field you could run it to the boundary like there's there is a little bit of being able to disguise uh, the direction of the play based on your pre-snap formation right yes. Because I thought that one of the reasons why not only like Paul Johnson went from Navy to Georgia Tech, brought the offense from Navy to Georgia Tech. But one of the reasons that I thought that this was another part of this and I'm painting with very, very broad strokes. But I thought that was that we're really tapping into potential advantages in uh, decision making. Not that not that you have to be one of the smarties to, to run the triple option. But just the idea that when you've got these, you know, future servicemen out there on the field, decision making in high pressure situations, well, boy, that sounds like something that they're training for in every mm-hmm. other part of their existence at their time at the academy. And so you are basically using those skills, which they're developing for their time after football, and you're putting them into play like the triple option to me is like definitely the contrarian play, but also a little bit of, I believe that we've got better decision makers under pressure. And while they might not have the size strength or speed of some of their opponents, if they can make better decisions in space in one-on-one situations or in those sort of uh, friction mesh point, not mesh point, but like those friction moments that we believe that we can create good opportunities for, uh, you know, either four yards or like 44 yards. Yeah. I, but I, I think I get what you're saying, but I feel like that while the ability to make those decisions helps them run the offense well and efficiently. It's not a reason to use it, to put it yeah, into because play. You, I mean, if we look around, it's not like the, you know, what we refer to as the serve, like the option offense, the option offense is prevalent in every single offense right now. You look at run pass options, sure. RPOs. It's just an option offense. It's just, it involves a pass. And the, you know, the service academies can't really run that kind of offense because, they don't really have the quarterbacks for it. They don't really have the receivers for it. And more importantly, they don't really have the offensive line to block it. Because if you look at a service academy offensive line compared to like an SEC defensive line, there's a huge disparity in the size because 
service academies have limits on how large the, the you know soldier or the cadet can be. You can't be above a certain size. So Navy can't go get that 6'7", 320-pound tackle because he can't be in the military. He's too big. So they need to run these offenses because their, their scheme, what we see with their option offenses, you know, like a cut-blocking scheme, they're not trying to block a guy as much as they're just getting in his way and taking him out of the play. And that's another reason that, you know, it's hard to imagine them being able to run different kinds of offenses than the ones that they currently run. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there is no place where it benefits Navy or a service academy to go hat on a hat. No. Yeah. Because, you know, six, seven, 300 pound tackle can't fit in a plane. <laughs> That's Put him on a sub. You know what I'm saying? It's <laughs> like there's not a lot of room for him. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Uh, all right. This question from Wisco13. Wisco asks, if you were a hypothetical five-star kicker, five-star kicker, with offers from every school, where would you want to go? And what are you asking for in hypothetical compensation (laughs) wherever you choose? I mean, I think I'm going to Alabama simply simply because like Alabama never has a kicker, right? Yeah, but I don't I think that the kickers show up there fine. I think it's being at Alabama that messes them up. I'm a five-star kicker. I ain't I ain't scared. I I'm just saying, you know? There's, like there's no, you know, I'm going to be a legend. Are you kidding me? <laughs> if, I'm making those field goals. We ain't losing a game because whenever we need a game-winning kick, I'm making it. You I will be Bigger than any Alabama player in history because I will be the one who stands out because I was the kicker who made the kicks. I mean, the kickers that show up at Alabama have high ratings and have positive reviews coming out of their high school experience. That's because they're going to Alabama. Nobody scouts kickers. (laughs) But being at Alabama, man, there's something about I think I think that they were good kickers before they got to Alabama. No, if I'm a five-star kicker with offers from every single school, I cannot believe you would not want to go to the uh, the proven training ground in Salt Lake City that is life as yeah. a Utah Ute. Yeah, because then I could boom like 60 yarders and stuff. No, I would – I mean, yeah, I, there's reason to think, you know, I would look for either a place with great weather. Yeah. So, like, no – like, that's the other thing. Like, Utah and Colorado, you get the elevation boost, but – you also get a lot of wind and snow, which could mess with your kicking. So I, I would look for great weather. If there was an indoor thing, that could be beneficial. But I don't know. As far as the compensation I would look for, it would be a good quality education. <laughs> I think that you're getting that. You don't uh-huh. want anything more? No, that's all I need, darn it. Are you giving up cost of attendance? Oh, no, I'll take, I mean, everything that comes with it. But yeah. just... All I need is the good quality education. Um, I think that I would ask for uh, all online classes except for fitness walking. I will See, fulfill. I will fulfill my PE requirement, which I think for most athletes, like their, their physical education requirement, does end up just getting sort of checkmarked by playing on a team. I think that'll do fitness walking. I don't know. I mean, I understand the desire to have all online courses, but given the current climate that we find ourselves 
it's strange to me. It's like, you know, in a, in a couple months, I might be dying to be with people. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's true. <laughs> if this if this hypothetical five-star kicker is in the class of 2021, uh-huh. then, yeah, he's he might actually want to go to Wisconsin or Penn yeah. State or Ohio State, one of these classes with as many as people as possible. I want to be in a giant auditorium filled with hundreds of people. <laughs> What about uh so the the wind is going to be a little bit too brutal probably at Hawaii, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it's usually windy when we look at our weather reports when we're looking at Hawaii games. So like Laramie's out, Honolulu probably would be out, yeah. It's going to be windy in Laramie. I mean, I feel like USC would probably be a good place to kick. Oh, never a bad day to kick at USC. Yeah, you know, it's never really raining there. It, there's there's earthquakes, but as long as it doesn't happen while I'm, you know, approaching the ball, I should be fine. The only earthquake uh, the only earthquakes we want is the Richter scale registering uh the Coliseum going nuts as you split these uprights to beat UCLA and get to 7 and 5 on the season. <laughs> there we go. Uh let's see. Let's go let's go bottom 4. All right. So a question came on December 30th and uh, I believe the name was inappropriate. So I didn't <laughs> transcribe it to the, uh, the mailbag doc, but the question it's right there. It's December 30th. They asked everyone talks about expanding the playoff, but would you support a bottom four playoff to allow bad teams more practice example, Rutgers, Vanderbilt, Kansas, and Georgia tech. Also, what game was more fun to watch, Miami, Louisiana Tech, or last year's Cheese It Bowl? Well, first of all, easy answer. Of course, I would support a bottom four playoff. I have a bottom four playoff that I do every year with the bottom twenty-five rankings that I do, where you know we simulate the four worst teams in my rankings and have them do their own little version of the college football playoff, where the loser wins. Now. I think it'd be better to see it play out in real life than in simulations. So whether we're doing it to give teams more practice time, I don't care. I'm just worried about my own entertainment. So yes, I would a hundred percent be for it. As for the other question, this makes me mad. All right. Because the answer is cheese it bowl. Yeah. And listen, the independence bowl between Miami and Louisiana tech comes nowhere close to what the cheese it bowl was and i saw like i remember this is like he put this on new year's on december 30th so this was like right when the independence bowl was played and i saw during that game so many people talking about how it's this year's cheese it bowl if stop no it's like you know the scene in mean girls where the, she's like stop trying to make fetch happen yeah that's exactly what was going on because people were so desperate to have another cheese it bowl that they were trying to compare the only thing that was close was it was a low scoring game that's it Louisiana Tech beat Miami 14 to nothing. Cal and TCU went to overtime in a 10 to 7 game. It was a close, exciting game, but let's compare these two, all right? Not only was it an overtime game, so there was drama that included a kicker who did not even get a chance. He was pulled for a backup kicker to kick a game-winning field goal in regulation, which was missed, then come on to kick the game-winning field goal in the overtime. But there were nine turnovers in that game. 
And they weren't like crazy fumbles. They were all interceptions and they were bad. Like what in the hell are you doing interceptions? So there was like that kind of entertainment for how bad it was. You look at the Independence Bowl, the outcome was never in doubt because Louisiana Tech took a 7-0 lead in the second quarter. Miami never even threatened to score. So it was a 14-0 final. Plus, Louisiana Tech didn't really play all that bad in the game. Like they had one turnover, but they had 330 yards of offense. They held Michigan or Miami to 227 yards. Miami turned it over three times, but that was just a case of one team not wanting to be there and another team yeah. not being super talented enough to just kill them while doing it. So, no, that that was just a bad football game. They are n- nowhere near close to being the same kind of event. Yeah, and the, the motivation is probably where it starts and ends for me because in the Independence Bowl – Louisiana. Oh, they wanted to win. Louisiana. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. The Louisiana Tech wanted to be there. Miami did not want to be there. It was very obvious from the very beginning of the game that Miami was in. My, Miami's soul was troubled. The Hurricanes were not in a good place. And man, like between, I mean, Justin Wilcox's Cal program is like its DNA is like hard-nosed toughness never quit. Like Gary Patterson's TCU, like both TCU and Cal wanted to win so bad. The level of actual competitiveness was extremely high in a way that it wasn't at all in Miami, Louisiana Tech. And that's what made the like efforts to win were, were just so inspired until the turnovers. <laughs> I mean, the best, the best, you know, like when you would go to like a basketball game or a hockey game and during like halftime or the intermission, they would have like the babies playing yeah, or like the tots. That's the, like, it was two teams who really wanted to win, but they were playing like two-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> so the level of play was horrible, but the, the desire to play was there. It was awesome. I mean, here, I'm looking at the box score now. This is... <laughs> Yeah, at uh, at intermission of a Carolina Hurricanes game, the Junior Canes come out and just yes. even like skating gets cheers. <laughs> Grayson Mulestein, who was TCU's quarterback in this game, was seven of twenty for twenty seven yards. And and that was because also TCU going into the game was already on its like fifth quarterback of the season. Yes. He had a QBR of 3.1 and <laughs> <laughs> he averaged one point four yards per attempt. <laughs> But it was it was a masterpiece of awful. It was amazing. It was wonderful television. It was just it was one of those. It was not a game that you could be like, okay, what's going to be this year's version of that? No, this it was like the one in a million game. It was fantastic. I've also got a sneaky suspicion that I think more people. I th- I think the Cheez It Bowl might be one of those situations. Um, you know, there there's always sporting events where you know, let's say uh, it was a basketball game. It happened in arena. The arena holds fifteen thousand people, but like thirty thousand people say they were there. I think more people talked about the Cheez It Bowl than actually watched it. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean. I know you you and I were watching it live. We were we were actually recording, recording a, a podcast. podcast with it. And I remember there were a lot of like the college football Twitter world was watching along. But this was like a game, I think, that started at like 10 p.m. Eastern. Yep. And yeah, it was there were definitely people watching it. But I, I do recall 
a lot of people talking about it who I don't really remember seeing talk about it during the game. Yeah, that's that's what makes me think that those people were the ones who were trying to make Miami, Louisiana Tech happen. And it's just yeah, they not, had that FOMO. They yeah, were trying to they were trying to be on. a part of it. Yeah. Um, all right, let's go out to Duck Fan. Duck Fan 2014. Love the show, guys. It is your Oregon fan from Columbus. Loving my Oregon Rose Bowl champions and getting optimistic about Ohio State coming to Eugene in the fall. I'm curious to hear your take on Don Mario being a Saban replacement. I feel like every step Oregon takes forward is one step closer to losing Cristobal to my to Alabama. Convince me Mario isn't Bama's first call when Saban hangs it up and after Dabo says no. Uh, I don't know if I can convince you that it's not going to happen because I do think that I do think that Dabo would probably be where Alabama goes to first. But I do, depending on how things work at Oregon, if if they continue to have success, then yeah, it's he's going to make sense as a possible replacement for Saban. It's just what kind of money will Oregon be willing to throw him to keep him if that's the case? So it's. I, I don't know. I do think that he's a logical candidate for the job if he continues at the current trajectory at Oregon with the way he's recruiting and if he can, you know, make them the Pac-12 power, then obviously then Alabama would be in a luring spot. It's just at the same time, I mean, do you want to be the guy that replaces Nick Saban? Well, all right. So that is that is definitely uh, a part of this that I think might be easier for you and me to discuss because if you're Mario Cristobal and you get offered the Alabama football job, football head coaching position, I think you take it. Like I, I'm not trying to, I don't want to pat Oregon on the head right here, but you know that's that is a position where I would say to our good friend Duck Fan, who did remember uh, Duck Fan 2014 proposed the idea in like the middle of the season. That they, he or she, I don't, I don't know if we know a uh, a gender on this one, but you know whatever. It's you hard want. to tell with ducks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But remember, there was the suggestion from Duck Fan 2014 that uh, they would rather miss the playoff and win a Rose Bowl than make the playoff and get blown out in the semifinal. So you got yeah. your wish there. That's awesome. But you know, I I think that if Mario Cristobal is getting a real look to replace Nick Saban at Alabama, then Mario Cristobal has done enough winning and been a good enough coach at Oregon that you just got to say thanks. And again, like I'm, I'm really not trying to belittle the ducks or, or pat them on the head, but it's the Alabama job and it's the Oregon job. And the Oregon job is well-funded because of the connections to Nike and Phil Knight and, and sort of everything, the way that Eugene has built around athletics and that university. But as, like even before we start to get into the fact that, you know, Cristobal was an assistant and a recruiting coordinator and, and a big part of Nick Saban's Alabama program. Therefore, he's got familiarity and, and he understands what it takes to win there. But just the idea that if you are in consideration that means that you've been doing your job really really well and if i am an oregon fan i thank don mario for the work that he's done and understand completely why he would be taking that job oh yeah for sure but i i i agree 100 million percent i mean alabama is a better job than oregon it's a step up 
no matter how well you do at Oregon, simply because, like you said, it's Alabama. You 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 can theoretically win national titles at Oregon, as Chip Kelly has you know shown us. You can you can get very close to doing it, but like you know, you can win national titles at Alabama, and you know that you're going to have the support of everybody to do whatever the hell you want to do to keep winning. But that said, even though he did spend four seasons on that staff under Nick Saban. I don't think it's uh, definite that if Alabama came calling that he would go because, you know, it's not like he it's not like he played at Alabama. It's not like he's from Alabama. He's a Miami native. He played at Miami. So it's not like he's, you know, that kind of like Dabo kind of connection where you think it'd be hard for him to turn down the alma mater. So if he feels like he's got things good enough at Oregon and he's getting paid well enough at Oregon and he likes the direction things are going, I don't think that it would be something where he could, you know, not I don't think it would be, you know, Don Mario. I don't think it would be an offer he couldn't refuse. Ah, and I should also, uh, you know, call myself uh, to task that there have been several steps along the way. I feel like in recent years, particularly where, you know, something comes up and we think like, oh, you know, why wouldn't James Franklin entertain Florida State or like why wouldn't uh Urban Meyer try to go to USC or like, of course Jeff Brom is going to take that Louisville job he's all about Louisville like we make uh in the process of just having some of these conversations I think that we try to make some informed guesses or we present hypotheticals for the purposes of discussion but we have been proven time and time again that we aren't the college football coaches that actually make these decisions about whether no. to stay or go so i mean you you're 100 percent right like even like oregon probably could pay a competitive salary um to most jobs in uh, across the country certainly within the landscape of the pac-12 but you're there might be some intangibles as well where Cristobal looks at what he's got going and he looks at uh, the the pressure that there would be at Alabama to be the guy that follows the guy. And he might say, ah, I'm going to sit this one out. Yeah, because it's like if he goes to Alabama and has like one nine-win season. Done. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's time to move on. Uh, I remember one time Banner Society's Spencer Hall was on Bomani Jones podcast, The Right Time, and he described it. I like this. He said, whoever follows Saban, the contract is your retirement plan. You just save every paycheck that you've got. Mm -hmm. You know that you're going to get fired and there's your retirement plan. Yeah. It's you're the rebound coach. Yeah. And that's, and you know what? Somebody's got to do it. Right, mm-hmm. somebody. Uh, so that's why that's that's going to be fascinating to me when Saban finally does leave. That it's I that that could be a coaching search where they're either going to have somebody like Dabo's going to make the jump quick, or Dabo says no, and then things could get like weird. very weird. Yeah, because not all of Alabama's coaches have been showstoppers. No. Yeah. Let's, let's not forget who Saban replaced. Did he wait? Hold on. Did he replace uh, Price or Shula? Shula, wasn't it? Right. Hold on. Pretty sure it was Shula. Although maybe I can't even. It's been so long. Let's see. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He got there in 07. and, and yeah, he uh, replaced Shula. Okay. Or technically, he replaced Joe Kynes, who was the interim coach after well. Shula got fired. And then who was before Shula? 
Oh, it might have been. It might have been Price. Was oh man, because Price never coached a game, so it went. It was Mike Debose. Like Gene Stallings was there till '96. Then Mike DeBose took over until 2000. Then it was Francione for two seasons. Remember oh, yeah. when Dennis Francione was the Alabama coach? But then maybe left to go to Texas A&M? Or was that yeah. backwards? Like that was, that was, I mean, it was 2002. It feels like that was like a century ago. Yeah. <laughs> and then it was Mike Shula for four years. And then, yeah, then it was Saban. So, yeah, it, we... We need to not even look more than we can look less than a handful of coaches on the other side of Saban and know that it could get strange. Mm-hmm. Could get ve- like like Mario Cristobal almost makes too much sense if you're betting on strange. <laughs> I mean, yeah, because like we hear all about Bear Bryant, we know all about Saban, we know Stallings won a national title, but you know. While they had success, it's not like Ray Perkins, Bill Curry, you know, Mike DeBose, Dennis French. It's not like these guys were legends that were leading amazing teams every single year, year in and out. There was a lot of ups and downs during their times. Oof. Ooh. I would love if it, if it got weird. All right. So when, when do you think that would be? I would say over under three and a half more seasons of Nick Saban in Alabama. Uh, I mean, how old is he? He's 71. He is 68. 68. He'll turn 69. Nice. nice. On Hall- his birthday is Halloween. Uh, yeah, I mean, it depends. I would say three and a half is a good place to set it. I would probably lean over, but I think it also depends. Like, we could see a situation where he's more of a figurehead than anything. You know what I mean? And he's still there for a little longer as the quote-unquote head coach, but he has ceded a lot of the day-to-day responsibilities to somebody else. That would take a lot of growth on Nick Saban's part. It would, but (laughs) I mean, I feel like... And the other thing about Nick is I know that he loves football and that it has been such a huge part of his life, but I also think there's a part to Nick that at some point I think he's going to want to have a life away from it. You know what I mean? Oh, just just him and Terry out at the lake enjoying yeah. things. Yeah, enjoying the family and all that kind of stuff. I do get the sense that while he lives and breathes it, there's more to him than it. Yeah. As hard as that might be to believe based on public persona. He he's gonna get caught in a AFCA coaches convention meeting room with too many PJ Flex and he's gonna look around and he's like, I don't know, I'm out of here now. Yeah, because at some point, I mean <laughs> It happens to all of us, man. These young you bucks. just look around and you're like, I don't know any of these people. I cannot relate to any of these people. <laughs> yes. I think I'm just done. Yeah. At least there's uh, Jeremy Pruitt still out there keeping safe and young. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Coming up on the other side, more of your questions and our answers next. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, this question. So we just did some uh, Oregon and Alabama. Let's go to West Virginia. Okay. Bo asks, what do you think of Neil Brown as a head coach, and is he a good fit at West Virginia? Do you think he will have WVU competing for a Big 12 title anytime soon? I like Neil Brown. I think he did a very good job at Troy, and I think that it was only a matter of time until he got a Power 5 job, and I think that West Virginia made a good hire. Do I think he will have West Virginia competing for a Big 12 title anytime soon? No. I mean, it's. I feel like West Virginia is in. So first of all, as we record this, they're the only state without a confirmed coronavirus person. So maybe that'll help recruiting. I don't know, but I just think that when you look at their situation in comparison to being in the Big Twelve, they're at such a disadvantage in the way that they are completely separated from the rest of their conference. Like there is a lot of area of the United States between them and a school that they could say, quote unquote, border that's in their conference. So it's weird and difficult for them to recruit based on where they're playing and convince, like if you're playing in Texas and Oklahoma all the time, it might not be as easy to convince those kids to go to West Virginia. And if you're in West Virginia, it's probably a little more difficult to recruit your area when all your games are going to be played, you know, really far away from home for the most part. So I think that he's going to have to, he's going to have to find a formula that works. And I don't know what it is. I think maybe he could do it because I think that he's young enough and he's smart enough as a coach that he could figure something out. It's just to get from what West Virginia is to competing for a big 12 title that's that's a long way to go, and I just don't know that they're going to get there. So I, I'm not going to say it's not possible, but I don't think it would be – if it happens, it won't be, quote, unquote, anytime soon. It would probably be five, six years from now. I have two contradictory beliefs. Number one, that especially the way the season broke last year – now, Baylor, like, was undefeated. So, you know, they worked their way – or at least, you know, they were 8-0, you know, late into the season – they kind of worked their way from uh, where they were expected to be before the year to the to the top of that heap. But I don't think that – I think that Baylor making the Big 12 championship game last year should show us that if – that you can at least make the Big 12 championship game maybe not unexpectedly, but that things could come together and break your way pretty quickly. That there's so many teams in the middle – and upper third of that conference that the way that they can tend to beat each other up and, and you know, you catch a tiebreaker here or there Baylor's appearance in last year's big 12 championship game shows me that for West Virginia, the, the, if your goal is let's make the big 12 championship game, I don't think that that is necessarily that far off. I will not be predicting it in 2020. Uh, but I, I kind of have to believe that, you know, there's not enough stability 
at Texas, Iowa State, Oklahoma. And I mean, there's stability, you know what I'm saying? But there's not mm-hmm. enough like consistent championship contention at some of those other schools for me to say that they are going to be in a position to uh, always be able to shut out a team like West Virginia from being there. So, you know, I, I think that West Virginia could get to the Big 12 championship. That said, competing for Big 12 titles, plural, I don't think it's happening soon. Like that's a that's a little bit more of a you need to get there a couple times. You know, you need to be in the mix. You need to take down some Oklahoma. And and I just, you know, the Mountaineers are going to have to work themselves into a place where first they are going into November trying to make the Big 12 title game. Then they're going to need to make the Big 12 title game and maybe make it a couple times or win one before they reach the kind of expectation that it sounds like our uh, our good friend here Bo uh, was asking about Neil Brown. So, uh, yeah, I mean, don't you think they could be, they could make a Big 12 title game, maybe they a could. couple in like the next 10 years? I mean, I think if if we look at West Virginia's football history, I think you could make the argument that, you know, since probably the turn of the century 2000 till now has been, as far as long-term success, in a way, it has been the best period of success that West Virginia's had as a program, you know, from the, the rich rod years where they were finished, they finished in the top 10 of the AP poll, you know, three straight seasons before he left for the Michigan job. They were very close to playing in a BCS title game in 2007. And then going into the Bill Stewart era, which, you know, they still, they won nine games every single year. He was there as the head coach before he left. And then Dana comes in. But if you look at how things have gone, since they joined the Big 12, the same success has not been there. Mm. I mean, they had the 10-win season in 2016, but they've only, they've been in the Big 12 now eight years. They finished in the AP poll twice in those eight years. They have gone in 2012, they won seven games, four games, seven games, eight games. Then the 10-3 and three season in 2016, seven games, eight games, five games. So there's their their time in the Big 12 doesn't give me a ton of optimism about them competing for a Big 12 title. Ah, but I've got one thing that because uh, what's our biggest concern about West Virginia? It's distance from everyone else. Mm-hmm. How about this? All three of West Virginia's Big 12 wins in 2019, first year under Neil Brown, all of them were on the road. Boom. Can we get the home fans a win? Please, Neil Brown. I mean, coming to Morgantown is supposed to be the like one of the best home field advantages that you're going to get. Everybody's all excited. We got mascots with rifles and muskets. We got moonshine everywhere. Burning couches. I mean, come on. Yeah, they won uh, at Kansas 29-24. They won at Kansas State. Neil Brown is now the governor of Kansas 24-20. <laughs> and they won at TCU in Amon G. Carter Stadium. And and what what did Kansas, Kansas State, and TCU finish in conference this year? Were they all the, they all the last? Oh, yeah. I guess those would be... Uh, well, I guess Kansas State was 5-4. and four. Yeah, Kansas State was 5-4. and four, TCU is 3-6. and six, Kansas is 1-8. Oh, so. hey, hey, wins are wins. I'm just saying, he got the team focused on the road. So... You know, that's a that's a good sign of what life can be like in the Big 12. Uh, I do think they're going to improve. I just don't think 
Big 12 contender is a realistic thing. Now, that's not to say that they can't have like the year they had with Dana where they won 10 games, went to, you know, like and had a very big season, went to like some power, you know, some BCS or, you know, NY6 games. But I just don't think being a contender is something that is like a perennial thing in the future for them. Uh, C. Cherm, uh, back in November, asked, if you were Jim Harbaugh's conciliaire, how would you help Michigan get over the Ohio State hurdle? Man, you got to start recruiting. It's really that simple. That's that's the thing for anybody in the Big Ten. But the one thing Michigan has is the name brand that can kind of at least try to recruit on that level. The question is, does Michigan want to do that? Because, you know, it's there's a whole lot of Michigan man kind of arrogance you see a lot from like, well, we do things the right way and blah, you know, that kind of crap. Right. But there's also truth to it where Michigan does have like some, I don't know what's the best way to put it, but they, they do have an approach or a philosophy that while they want to win at football, they want to quote unquote do it the right way. Now, do I think that they're as pure as they want you to believe they are? No. no. But I, I do believe that there are some, you know, things that they're not willing to do and that they also, you know, maybe they don't want to put – there are other things that they emphasize more than maybe winning. And I will say that for all the stuff Harbaugh gets about the lack of success as far as what, you know, that football program is supposed to be or what fans want it to be or what, you know, the media hypes it up to be, a lot of people I have talked to over the years that are affiliated with Michigan and, you know, were there, you know, for, for, have been affiliated with it for a long time – do believe that Harbaugh has done a very good job of getting that program back to the identity that it had that they kind of felt was lost along the way when they went from Rich Rod to Brady Hoke. And they feel like a lot of that stuff got lost in the shuffle and they are getting back. It's just that thing that they're going back to isn't really in line with what it takes to be a national title college football playoff annual contender. And to be honest, if we look through the history of Michigan's program, obviously, depending on which records you want to use, you know, ones that have vacated wins or ones that don't, whatever, I don't care. But, you know, it's the winningest program in college football history. It's one more games. But we've but got like not, one, one national championship since integration. Yeah. It's yeah. not like it's a program that was ever had like a dynasty. Bo Schembechler was a great coach for Michigan. He had a ton of success, but it's not like he was stacking title on title on title while he was there. Lloyd Carr won a national title, but it's not like he was stacking titles on titles on titles. They've just been a very good program. They've never been the elite national title contender. And I feel like in a way we all kind of got lost because they fell so hard from what we expected Michigan to be, which was perennially, you know, a team that was probably going to lose one or two games every year, but it was going to win most of them. And it was going to be, you know, competitive with Ohio state. It was going to compete for big 10 titles. And I think that somewhere along the way, we kind of got that disconnect where we thought Michigan was a team that was a national title contender year in and year out. And that's just never who it's been. But since Harbaugh has come back, that's kind of the expectations we foisted upon it. So I think that there is, depending on your perspective of the program, you might think Harbaugh's doing exactly what you wanted him to do. I know. Whereas like the, like in Ann Arbor, I, I get the sense from people I talk to from in Ann Arbor, people at that school, they're happy 
with what Jim Harbaugh does. It's people outside who are like, whoa. Now, that said, everybody wants to beat Ohio State. Right. I mean, you got to do it at some point. But I don't think that the pitchforks are at the door as much as the narrative outside of Ann Arbor might suggest. A hundred percent. I'm right there with you. And I feel like a lot of it is being drummed up because Jim Harbaugh is Jim Harbaugh, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if he, if it was, uh, I'm trying to think, if it was, who is like a, a coach who's been somewhere for a while, if it was Bronco Mendenhall, if it was Michigan head coach Bronco Mendenhall, I don't think it gets the kind of like star power attraction that Jim Harbaugh does. I mean, Jim, Jim Harbaugh is Jim Harbaugh, first of all. Uh, Mm -hmm. then Jim Harbaugh also was, uh, you know, Stanford. Then he was the 49ers taking him to the Super Bowl. Like there's, there's a a long list of, um, stops that have made his name recognition, something that's worth debates on the national audience. But the people that are making the rundown from the national, uh, college football, national sports talk type perspective, they are not in tune at all from what I can tell excuse me, not at all. They are not as in tune as they probably should be to speak on this issue with what Michigan wants. And that is the same thing that I've heard from people that are close to Michigan, that a lot of the decision makers and the people who matter around Michigan and around Michigan football are very happy with the program that Jim Harbaugh is running. They would Mm -hmm. really, really like to beat Ohio state, but man, like, and that's the other thing that makes me, uh, not that they shouldn't, try to improve recruiting. And the question was, what should they do to get over the Ohio state hurdle? And recruiting is a great place to, to point to, but like in in my mind, I sort of look at each of those games individually. And when Michigan's been so close a couple times, I just, I think about the fact that, you know, a couple different bounces, a couple different things go a different way. And then all of a sudden, you know, we're, we're not necessarily working with this big time narrative. It's almost like, We've uh, we we've been sitting there. We've been sitting and pressing the button long enough that Michigan's got to have a win sometime soon. You'd hope so, but <laughs> <laughs> the way way Ohio State's recruiting, man, it's hard. It's yeah. yeah, it's they. It's just it's and again, I you know, I don't think I'm not morally judging anybody's philosophy. I don't think Michigan's doing it the quote-unquote right way. I don't think Ohio State's doing it quote-unquote the right way. It's just I think that some schools have different priorities for their athletic departments and their athletic programs than others do. And I think that Ohio State is much more inclined about winning, 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 sometimes putting it, you know, sometimes putting a little too high on the ladder, whereas Michigan has other priorities. Mm, Very, very well said. All right. Uh, because we don't have the full gang together, I'm not gonna do book club. Are you? That's fair, right? Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Have you read? Uh, have you read Educated? No. Okay. I think Barton has, and so I wanted to make sure that he was here to talk about it. But uh, I do. We do have some great book club recommendations, and uh, and just a. A wild review that we I've I've got to just highlight this one, but yeah, before we get out of here. All right. Really enjoyed Tom's book selection. Exclamation point, exclamation point. Oh, this is from uh Mitchell. Really enjoyed Tom's book selection. Highlighted several passages while reading it, none involving the dentist. LOL. 
One passage being better to be loved by dozens than liked by the hundreds. Uh, I guess that would be from the probability book, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I'll throw it out there. I love you guys. If you guys ever did a movie poster promo, I envision it being something full Soprano. I see Tom standing in the driveway in his wife beater, orange Illinois basketball shorts, and blue robe hanging open and Dirk's type sunglasses on. Barton is dressed casual with a Yale hoodie, and he's whispering in Tom's ear, the Yale conciliere, LOL, and holding a 24-7 scouting report, while Chip is in a Carolina blue mail getup with the mailbag over one shoulder and waving the week's betting lineup in the air with a house-divided banner waving on the front porch for Army-Navy. <laughs> Just a little rainy Monday humor. Keep up the great podcast, Mitchell. Uh, outside of the robe, I would say that's... And also standing in the driveway, but... <laughs> It's, I mean, orange yeah, yeah, yeah. portrayal. Yeah. <laughs> White feeder and orange Illinois basketball shorts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're they're actually they're blue. But yeah. <laughs> what what are Dirk's type sunglasses? I don't know, but I wear aviators. Yeah. Prescription lens. I do. Uh, I don't have a mailman get up, but maybe I need one. <laughs> yeah. Just. Just waving the mailbag over my head, mailbag over my shoulder, waving the week's betting lineup in the air with a house divided banner waving on the front porch for Army Navy. If Parker thinks UFC is sensual, wait till she sees Chip in his <laughs> Carolina blue mailman get up. Would I would definitely have to do the shorts, right? Oh yeah. The shorts shorter the better, yeah. Shorts with like thigh high black socks and black tennis shoes. <laughs> Oh, wow. Now I'm getting a little hot under the collar. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, Tiger uh, Tiger said... Somnolence? Somnolence? What? I don't know. Uh, this is by far the best podcast on any subject I've found. Love the chemistry between Barton, Chip, and Tom. Go Clemson Tigers book club suggestion. The Transformation of Virginia, 1740 to 1790 by Reese Isaac. As a West Virginian, I found it to be a great cultural history of how the South changed during a pivotal time in U.S. history before the better Virginia went West. <laughs> I'll, look, I'll, I'll look into it. All right. The Transformation of Virginia, 1740 to 1790 by Reese Isaac. Then where was another... Uh, um, I'll save that question for another one. But the uh, since we are giving out some recommendations, uh, Rach uh, dropped "Lest Innocent Blood Be Shed" by Philip Halley, I would believe, um, and "The Great War and Modern Memory" by Paul Fussell. The Great War and Modern Memory is a backstory about World War One. However, it's mainly discussing memory and its meaning, studying the authors of their time and their imaginative or artist meaning. And then Lest Innocent Blood Be Shed was looking at the village of Les Chambons during the Holocaust and how much how even in such horrible times people can choose to do the right thing. Well, those are up my alley. Those are uh, those are good suggestions as well. Any, mm -hmm. have, you, have you been loading up on your uh, on your books that you're diving into with the uh, uh, for the times? Yeah, I mean, I haven't ordered a ton of new books. 
I ordered the, the latest book I just ordered that came in the mail, but it's it's on a pile of books I got to catch up on is Atomic Habit. But uh, I am reading The Mixer right now, which is a soccer book. I'm, I, I, I thought about maybe buying a copy for Barton. Just to get yeah. <laughs> just Read this, you son of a... Uh, yeah, no, I've got a whole pile of books that I'm reading up. I've also been catching up on Netflix shows that I never watched. Like over the weekend, I binged the latest season of Last Chance U, which I never watched before the season started. What was your uh, review? Uh, good. Was this one in, hold on, was this one in Kansas? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I I was happy. I mean, I knew what happened with the coach, how he got fired and all that stuff before watching it because you know we covered that story when it happened but i was i enjoyed watching the downfall because i was not a fan of jason brown the coach last chance you season three on netflix yeah we, now we we started book club as like an off-season thing but i think we might need break out some viewers guide too works for me Have oh you- also i binged uh i never watched qb1 beyond the lights so I started watching that. I binged like the first season of that with like Tate Martell, Jake Fromm, and yeah. uh, Trayvon Hopkins, I think is his name. The one that went to Wake Forest, but then is now transferring. Uh, where like Jake, Fr- uh, not Jake Fromm, Tate Martell blamed his sister for tweeting for him at halftime. Yes. <laughs> so good. Maybe, maybe as a, uh, as part of the, um, as, as part of the viewer's guide, I might have to, to go through a uh, coach. Oh, the TV show? Yeah. Oh, is that available anywhere? I think so. It's if, not on Netflix, but oh, God, yeah, I would watch Coach. Yeah, we could do some Coach reviews on here. Um, Coming up on... So right now, uh, right now on CBSSports.com, we are about to roll out a, a fun... Uh, a fun March activity that honestly was pre-planned. You know, we do it on the college football side. You know, we try and, and participate in March Madness and the NCAA tournament fever by offering some kind of bracket uh, that allows, you know, some fun, some culture, some debate. Well, this year's bracket from the college football team at CBS Sports is going to be not, number one hits music hits from the 90s. And Ben Kerchival, who is leading that charge, is going to join Tom and I on Thursday. We're going to review the first two rounds, preview the Sweet 16 and the Elite Eight, have some fun, debate some of the songs, um, and you can go and vote. Voting starts on Tuesday. Tuesday and Wednesday will be the first and second rounds, and then Thursday and Friday will be the Sweet 16 and the Elite Eight. All of it's happening at cbsports.com. You can follow at Cover 3 Podcast uh, or any of us to be able to get in on that. Tom, I look forward to, uh, for our opportunity to yell at the people for the songs that they did not give enough support to. Oh, I'm going to be so mad at people I already know. <laughs> you can follow him on Twitter at Tom Pennell. You can follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. Tom, thank you very much. Thank you. Producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck explore how art and music sustained hope during the siege of Sarajevo, thanks in part to humanitarians and the band U2. Kiss the Future, new documentary now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Go to Paramount Plus to try it free. Terms apply.